Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So, guys, tonight what we're going to talk about, and we may not get as far as I'd like, is we're going to talk about the cross, or what's officially called the atonement. And what I want to do is... Have a drink. Have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to do, those of you listening online, it's a drink of water. <laughs> have a drink. Sounds like, what kind of church is this? Nah. I want to talk about the atonement. And what I want to do is I want to lay forth a biblical case of what the Bible teaches. And then we're going to look at different um, theories of what different groups believe about the atonement. So what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? What do Mormons believe? What do different, even among Christians, there's different theories out there about what Jesus did on the cross. And so that's kind of where we're going tonight. So um, I'm going to argue, and this is, this is not in your notes, but we'll get there eventually. I'm going to make the argument, and that's not a bad thing when you argue, you're just making a statement. I'm going to make an argument that the Bible teaches this, that the Bible teaches penal substitutionary atonement. There's a lot of people that disagree with that and would say, no way, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what the reformers imposed upon it. That's what, you know, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and those guys did. What does penal substitutionary atonement mean? Okay, so let's break these words down. What does penal mean? Punishment. Okay, so a penalty or a punishment. Did Jesus take a punishment on the cross? Yes. Okay. What does substitutionary mean? He did it in the place of us. Okay. And then what's an atonement? A death or a covering or a forgiveness. What penal substitutionary atonement states is that Jesus literally died in the place of specific sinners, bearing the penalty, bearing God's wrath, literally, really, on the cross. Now, you may think, well, that, isn't that what we're supposed to believe? Yes, but there's a lot of different people that have different views on that. So what we want to talk about, first of all, is the nature of the atonement. Come on. Why is it my... Is it going now? Okay, there we go. The first thing that we want to understand is sacrifice. I think most of us understand that Jesus died as a sacrifice on the cross. And so what this addresses is the truth that we as sinners deserve to die as a penalty for sin. What's the wages of sin? Death. So somebody has to die for sin, right? In the Old Testament, who died for sins? Animals. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, let's go there real quick. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. You actually see from the very first pages of Genesis a substitutionary atonement and somebody dying or something dying because of sin. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell and they brought sin into the world and then God pronounced a curse upon the serpent and then um, 
You know, you've got Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Go down to verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Question, the Bible doesn't specifically answer it, but the question is where did God do that? How did God get the animal skin? God had to kill an animal. God had to kill an animal in order to pay for the sin, if you will, of Adam and Eve figuratively, and then he clothed them with that, those skins. So what you see is a punishment, somebody dying, an animal. It's substitutionary in the sense that Adam and Eve weren't required to be killed. God killed an animal for them. Okay? So that's kind of a picture in the Old Testament that God has always said the wages of sin is death. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what did they sacrifice? Bulls, goats, calves. There was the whole sacrificial system. Do you remember the Day of Atonement and Passover? What was Passover? Well, yeah, Passover, they would go get a spotless lamb. They would have that lamb with them for 14 days. After 14 days... At, they would they would at twilight they would kill the lamb, they would put the blood on the lintels and the doorpost of their tent. They had to stay inside the tent under the protection of that blood, and then that evening when God sent His destroyer or His angel of death over the houses to pass over, if the angel of death saw the blood, the firstborn was spared. If he didn't see the blood, which who who did not have blood on their doorposts and front and, and houses? The Egyptians, and therefore there was no substitutionary atonement provided for them, therefore they incurred God's wrath. The Israelites, on the other hand, had a substitutionary atonement for them. Somebody died, a lamb, in the place. So there's this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Day of Atonement, what was the Day of Atonement? One day of year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and then he'd sacrifice two goats, the scapegoat and then the goat that he put his head on and send, send the goat out, and then he'd kill the other goat, and, and that would atone for the sins of the people for that year. And then the next year, how many years did he have to keep doing it? Every year, okay? Now, when Jesus comes along, Jesus is going to say, there's an old covenant. The old covenant involved blood from goats and bulls and lambs and the whole sacrificial system. That was the old covenant. When Jesus comes on the scene, he often makes this statement that there's a new covenant in his blood. And he says that in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five through 26, when Jesus gives these instructions to Paul, he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, not the old covenant. What was the old covenant? Goats and bulls. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus says, I coming on the scene means there's a new covenant, and it's a covenant in blood. Very similar to that sacrificial system in the Old Testament because there has to be a death for sin. Mark 14, 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What does it mean that Jesus' blood was poured out? He 
He bled. He died. He he physically bled and died, and that blood came out, and it covered many. So here's the definition. The definition is this. Jesus died as the sacrificial lamb of God, shedding his blood and dying the death we deserve to die because we're under the curse of sin and depraved in Adam and the wages of sin is death. So here's the argument of sacrifice. Because we're sinners, we deserve to die. And instead of us dying, Jesus dies as a sacrifice. Now, let's, let's tie this back to what we said last week. If Jesus was not perfectly If Jesus was not fully God and fully man, would he be an appropriate sacrifice? If he was not a man, could he represent men by dying on the cross for men and women? If he was somehow just a man and not God, could he actually take God's punishment on himself? So he had to be fully man to identify with men, and he had to be fully God to take the punishment that we deserve because no human can take that punishment and live. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the very first time walking, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is probably the one that we're most familiar with. There's There's a penalty for death or a penalty for sin that's death. Jesus died that penalty as a sacrifice. He literally physically died on the cross in our place as a sacrifice. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we're going to go into a little bit more detail. Propitiation. Big word. (laughs) This addresses the truth that we as sinners deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Now, let's talk a little bit about wrath because I don't want there to be many misunderstanding about God's wrath, because God's wrath is real, and God executed His wrath on Jesus. But let's say, let's 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 clearly say what wrath is not. Wrath is not God being so angry that He's out of control, or God's like a little baby that you've taken away His toys and He's throwing a temper tantrum. Or God is like Zeus and he's throwing lightning bolts just because he had a bad hair day. If God is holy and God is righteous, by virtue of him being holy and righteous, must he punish sin? And how does he punish sin? He punishes it by executing justice or wrath. So wrath is a holy anger, a righteous anger that God has against sin that he sends down upon Jesus. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. What would happen if you and I bore the full brunt of God's wrath? We call it hell. That's what hell is. Hell is the eternal suffering of God's wrath forever. Jesus took that wrath that we deserved in himself. So let's look at some of these words that are used in the Bible to to describe what Jesus did. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What's Paul saying there? If you don't obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, which does anybody here do that? You're under a curse. What does the curse mean? You're under a death sentence. You're under guilt. You're under um, condemnation. You're under a curse. Okay? So all of us here are under a curse. Not anymore if you're a Christian. But everybody's born under the curse of sin. Listen to what Jesus says in John 3.36. These are the words of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Which assumes what? It was already there. So if you don't believe in Jesus, what is the outcome? God's wrath remains upon you. So the only way to escape God's wrath, the only way to escape hell is to what? Believe in Jesus Christ to have eternal life. If not, the wrath of God remains on you. Which means it's already there. Did you have a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Death sentence. Curse. Yeah, guilt. I'm sorry. That's, I'm not the greatest handwriter. All right, let's look at Ephesians 2.3. Paul says this is the state of every single human being that's born, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of what? Like who? So all mankind is what? A child of, and it's what? By their nature. That's pretty heavy. So our nature, as, as because we've inherited it from Adam, is to be a child of wrath, meaning that God's wrath abides upon us. There's a death sentence upon us. There's a, there's a curse upon us. We're under God's guilt. And the only way to get out of that is to have somebody take care of that. Can we can we get ourselves out of being under God's wrath? There's no way we can personally do that. Somebody has to do that for us. So when Jesus died on the cross, the question then becomes, what did he do with God's wrath? How did he, how did he, how did he deal with God's wrath? He took it on himself. Yes. He absorbed it. He absorbed it. He took it on himself. And we see this in Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sekbachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you, and what's the key word there? Now, why would Jesus, now this doesn't, let's, let's stop here, time out. This doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. And it doesn't mean that somehow Jesus and the Father had an estranged relationship because they've always been perfectly unified. What does it mean that Jesus was forsaken in that moment? It means that in that moment, all of our sin was credited or reckoned or counted to Jesus so that when God saw Jesus on the cross, what did God see? He saw us. And based upon that, it was was Jesus becoming a curse. Now think about this. This always blows my mind. Jesus never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. 
But the moment he died on the cross and cried that out, he experienced sin for the very first time in his life. And it wasn't his, but it was ours. And it was a lot. And God turned from it? Well, the Bible never says that God turned his back. Um, but But what it says there is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the sense that at that moment, Jesus was being treated as if he had committed all of those sins. And as a result of that, God is too pure to look upon sin. So therefore, um, in those moments, Jesus was taking our sin, taking that punishment, taking that wrath. Okay? Yeah. And then in Isaiah 53.10, this is an Old Testament prophecy about what God was pleased to do. What was God's will? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Stop and think about that for a moment. Some people may have a problem with that. It was God's will to crush Jesus. That's what it says right there. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Was it God's will that Jesus die? Was it God's will to crush Jesus? Did God enjoy it? No. Was it like God was sadistically saying, hey, I'm getting so much pleasure out of crucifying my son? No, that's not what happened. It was God's will to do it because it was the only way sin would be paid for. It was the only way that our sin could fully be dealt with if God crushed Jesus in our place. What's the opposite of that? What would be the only other alternative? It was the will of the Lord to crush us. If God were to crush us, what would that mean? Hell. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, we wouldn't know what it, mean. we wouldn't know what it meant to be crushed. Okay? Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That sounds like a song, right? He became sin, who knew no sin. We sang it Sunday. So Jesus became sin, a sin offering. All of our sin was credited to Jesus in that moment. And so when Jesus had our sin, when Jesus took our guilt, when Jesus took our punishment, He was taking the curse because Galatians tells us that. Galatians 3, 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Now, let me just give you a little bit. That's from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The cross was an offensive symbol to both the Jews and the Gentiles. (coughs) To a Jew, if you were to hang on a cross, that meant that you were God-forsaken. You were cursed. You must have been under a curse of God. Okay? Now let's ask the question. Is that true of Jesus when he hung on the cross? Was he cursed of God? What does it say? He became a curse for us when he hung on the cross. To the Gentiles, it meant that you were the lowliest of servants. You were a slave. It was offensive. You didn't even use the word cross. The word cross was a four-letter word. You didn't use it in dinner conversations. So in a sense, it's interesting that in God's providential time frame, out of all periods of history, 
There's only one period of history where there was death by crucifixion. And that was during the time of Christ. And the Roman Empire were the ones that invented crucifixion. And so God chose that time. Could Jesus have died by being stoned? Yeah. That's the way the Israelites punished people. The Israelites never hung somebody on a cross. How did the Israelites deal with the death penalty? If you go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it was by stoning. Okay. Yeah, Stephen got stoned. Okay. So the only way that you would actually be crucified is if there's a government in place that does crucifixion. So God orchestrated in His providence that during the time of Christ, the government in play would be Rome that would actually crucify. Okay? And so on the cross, Jesus is taking that curse. Now, what is propitiation? Romans 3.25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There's the word. He was put forward as a propitiation. You also see it in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. you got the word there again. You've got it in 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what in the world is propitiation? Yes, but here's the, here's, the, here's the ultimate definition of it. Propitiation is the removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. It is a substitutionary atonement, but it involves Jesus somehow taking that wrath. He doesn't just cancel God's wrath. He absorbs it. He takes it upon himself so it doesn't come upon us. He exhausts it. God, you know, when Jesus was in the garden, and what did he pray? Lord, let this cup pass from me. Now, what was the cup? If you go back to the Old Testament, the reference to the cup was the cup of God's wrath. Was Jesus afraid of the Roman soldiers that were going to come and arrest him? Was Jesus really scared of those nails going to be in his hands and his feet? What was Jesus knowing was going to happen? The cup. What was the cup? At that moment, when he was on the cross... All of our sin would come barreling down upon Jesus and God would punish Jesus in our place. That's amazing love. Who deserves to be punished? Who deserves God's wrath? And why in the world would God send Jesus, who's perfect, to do it for us? It doesn't make sense. But we should fall on our knees in thankfulness that Jesus did it. And it wasn't like he went unwillingly. It wasn't like God said, go, Jesus. And she said, no, I don't want to go, Dad. (laughs) Or the Father forced him. No, the Father and Jesus in eternity past had a covenant of redemption where they agreed that this was how it was going to happen. And the Son voluntarily went to the cross and the Son and the Father lovingly sent Jesus. So they were working in unison the entire time because it was the only way that God could, could forgive sin. Um. So you've got sacrifice, you've got propitiation, then you've got reconciliation. This is the truth that as sinners, we're separated from God, we're hostile to God. So propitiation deals more with how the Father and the Son interact. Reconciliation assumes that we are estranged from God, we're separated from God, and we need to be brought back to God. 
Does God need to be reconciled to us or do we need to be reconciled to God? (laughs) Who's the offended party? God. We're the offenders, so we need to be reconciled back to God. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. So in Romans 5, 8 through 11, but God shows his love for us in this. How does God show his love? While we were still sinners, so God didn't wait for us to clean our act up and say, hey, get better. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, there's the key word there, enemies, we were reconciled, key word, to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. The word reconciled, reconciliation shows up multiple times in that passage. But the issue is we were enemies of God until Jesus reconciled us. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 describes it a little differently. It says, you were once alienated. What does alienated mean? Separated, Separated, not together, and hostile in mind. What does hostile mean? I'm violently opposed. You're You're violently opposed as an enemy to God. That's what you once were. You were doing evil deeds because it was your nature to do evil deeds. But what has he done now? He's now reconciled. So what has he done? He's brought you back. He's, he's taken care of that alienation. He's gotten rid of that hostility. He's, he's made you friends. You're no longer enemies. How? In his body of the flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's the definition of reconciliation. Because of our sinful nature, we stand condemned and hostile against God as His enemy, and we're alienated from Him. Through Christ's death on the cross, He brought us back into a right relationship with God, and now we have peace with God through Jesus. We've been reconciled to the Father, and we can now stand in His presence accepted. It's the whole idea that now we have peace, now we're friends, now we're reconciled, now we're in a right standing because that's what Jesus has done through His cross. Then there is redemption. This addresses the truth that we as sinners are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Redemption has to do with purchasing us out of bondage. You also will see the word redemption or you may also see the word ransom. They're all from the same family of Greek words, redemption and, 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 and ransom. It mean, really, the Greek word there means to purchase, to buy. To buy out of slavery is really what it means. Let's go back to the Passover for a moment. What was the condition of the Israelites when they were in Egypt? They were slaves. Okay, physically. What did God do? God released them out of slavery by means of a blood sacrifice. Physically. Okay. Spiritually, are we in bondage without Jesus? Yes. And on the cross, what does He do? He buys us out of that. He releases us out of that so that we could be free. Uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom, as a payment for many. Romans three twenty four. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, the purchasing that's in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7, in Him we have redemption. How does it come? Through His blood. 
What does it look like? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Titus 2, we're waiting for the blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of a great God and, and Savior Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He gave himself to do what? To redeem us, to buy us from what? All lawlessness and to purify himself for people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, you were purchased, you were bought from your old ways, your futile ways, your empty ways that you inherited from your forefathers. But you weren't purchased with perishable things such as gold or silver. What were you purchased with? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here's the definition of redemption. Because we are enslaved to sin and to the kingdom of Satan, we need to be rescued from bondage. Through Christ's atonement, He paid the ransom price in His body and blood to release us from slavery of sin and to purchase us as His bride. That's the biblical teaching of the nature of the atonement. Now, there's another thing I want to talk about. The perfection of the atonement. John 19.30 When Jesus had received sour wine, He said, It is halfway done. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. What did He say? It is finished. Now, let me just teach you guys a little bit of Greek. Is that okay? You can walk out of here and say, it was all Greek to me tonight. I have no idea what he was talking about. It's one word. I'm going to see if I can spell it. It's the Greek word tetelestai. One word, tetelestai. And what it means is this. If you were to go buy some property in the ancient days and you were to pay it in full, like you were to go buy a piece of land, and you bought it from the landowner, there would be a parchment that they would, you, would, you would do the paperwork, and then they'd, they'd dip some hot wax, and then they'd stamp it really hard, and they'd stamp it with the word tetelestai. And what that means is paid in full. Your land, you've paid it in full. You don't own any more. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have to make monthly payments. You don't have to come back and take it on credit. It's paid in full. That's, the, that's what Jesus says on there. So we translate it, it is finished, but it's one Greek word that says paid in full. Now, the tense of that word, tetelestai, is in a tense that we call the perfect tense in the Greek language. We don't really have the equivalent in English. The perfect tense means this. An action came to a completion in the past, but yet... It has ongoing effects that stand completed forever. So you could say it like this. It is finished. It is paid in full at the moment Jesus died on the cross, and it continues to be to this day a completed work. That's what we call it the finished work of Christ. It was a once and for all payment never to be repeated. What was the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament? Every year they had to keep paying or you know, having the atonements every year. Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, not that Old Testament type stuff, but by means of his own blood. And what did he secure? He secured an eternal redemption. Jesus secured it. Did Jesus get what he paid for? Did Jesus accomplish it? Or did Jesus kind of down on the cross and say, you know what? I did the best I can. I died so that people could be saved 
Or did Jesus literally die to save people? That's a question we're going to ask here in a minute. Because it says he secured an eternal redemption. He secured it. He bought it. It also says it is finished once and for all. So here's the definition. Christ's sacrificial and substitutionary atonement on the cross was a one-time completed work of redemption that does not to be, need to be added to or repeated. We're going to talk about that in a minute because there's a large group here in northeastern Colorado that does not believe in the finished work of Christ. It is a perfect work as evidenced by Jesus' triumphant words, it is finished, perfect tense in the Greek that I just explained. Now, we live in northeastern Colorado, which is heavily influenced by what? Roman Catholicism. Do, does the Roman Catholic Church believe in the finished work of Christ? They do not. How do Catholics view the atonement? And have you ever thought, what is the Mass? Many Catholics don't know what they're doing when they take the Eucharist. They're doing it out of tradition. They do it because they've always done that. But they may not fully understand what they're doing. Let's let the Catholic Church tell us what they're doing. These aren't my words. This is from the Catholic Catechism. This is their definition of the Eucharist or the Mass. In this sacrament, they believe that there occurs, quote, a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. So that little wafer actually becomes what? Jesus. And that cup of juice or wine actually becomes His Okay? Not symbolic the way we do it as Baptists. It's not symbolic. It literally is. So the question then, if you believe that as a Roman Catholic, how does that happen? If Jesus has already died on the cross and he's up in heaven, how does Jesus come down and get into a wafer? That's the No, that's an ultimate question. How does Jesus come down from heaven and get in the wafer? And how does Jesus' blood, which should have already been finished once and for all, how does it come down and get into the cup? Well, here's the answer. I'll give you the answer. This is from John O'Brien, famous Catholic writer. He's written the book called The Faith of Millions. It's kind of a popular book that talks about what the Catholics... Quick quote, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he, who's he, the priest, reaches up into heaven, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him on the altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man, not once but a thousand times. The, sp the priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and typical God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Oh my. Oh my. That's what they believe. So how does Jesus come down from heaven and get into the wafer? The priest, which is called the vicar of Christ. What's a vicar? one that stands in the place of. The priest pulls Jesus down as a victim. Was Jesus ever a victim? No. Does Jesus have to obey what a priest... The, the priest pulls Jesus down in the consecrated mass and puts Jesus on the table. And when you take the Eucharist, it's as if he's being sacrificed again. So every time the Catholics celebrate mass, they believe the priest has the power to pull Jesus down and to sacrifice him again right there, and you're literally taking his body and his blood. 
I don't know if a lot of Catholics know that's what they're doing when they're taking the Eucharist. If they did, if it was explained like that, do you think some Catholics may have a problem with that? Listen to what Vatican II Catechism says. Okay, so Vatican II, this is like official Catholic teaching. Vatican, and I'm not trying to pick on Catholics. We're talking about other differences, beliefs, and I think you need to be aware of this. And I'm not saying anything that a Catholic priest wouldn't come here and tell you that this is what they believe. So I'm not slandering what they believe. I'm just clearly telling you what they believe from their own writings. This is what the Vatican II Catechism says. As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ our Lamb has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. So every time there's a Mass, it's as if Jesus is being sacrificed over and over again, and that's how we get salvation. How do you get salvation in the Roman Catholic system? Through the Mass. And who's in charge of that? The priest. Is it faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone? Does it present an almighty Savior who's powerful to save or is it a Savior that's waiting for the priest to bring him down? How do you deal with Jesus' words, it is finished? So the official teaching, the word that they use, maybe they don't use, but it's kind of a theological word. It's the word transubstantiation. That's kind of the, the buzzword. The wafer and the wine are changed by the power of God into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And so when you think about it, in the Roman Catholic theology, since there is no finished work, this life, it it will leave some in this life not yet fully purified. That's why there's purgatory. What happens if you die and you didn't take your last rites? or you did not have your Eucharist. If that gives you salvation every time you take it, what happens if you sin between the time you take it and the time you don't take it? You've lost your salvation, or you have to gain it back by doing something. So there's no finished work. There's no assurance of salvation. There's no powerful Christ as mediator, and it puts all of your hope in a man, a fallible man, that's administering the, the, the Eucharist so that you can have salvation. Yes, Lori. Don't they put a lot of stock in their baptism as well? Yes. As far as salvation? Yes, and here's why they do baptism, because they believe like we do that there's original sin. Do we all believe that babies are born sinners? <coughs> yes. Their answer to that is the way to get rid of original sin is to baptize the baby. So when they baptize the baby, they believe it actually takes away that sin. But then as the baby gets older, start sinning. So that's when you have to have you kind of go through confirmation, get your first communion. So I've, I've used this analogy before. It's like a gas tank. So when you're born as a baby and you get baptized, your gas tank's full of grace. But as you keep living and sinning, what's going to happen? Your tank's going to, you're almost going to, and what happens if you get down to empty? If you get down to empty and you die, you're going to purgatory or hell. So you've got to always make sure your gas tank's full. How do you keep your gas tank full? You do the sacraments. So every time your gas tank gets low on grace, go do a sacrament. The priest, you know, say a few Hail Marys, go do the Eucharist. You know, get, get, get your gas tank back up. So you're always living by basing your grace, your salvation, on how well you do in the sacraments to get yourself back up to being in God's good graces. 
And some of you have some disturbed looks on your face, <laughs> and you should. And I guess what makes it very hard is because I think a lot of you have come out of that background, and a lot of you still have friends and family in that background. And how do, you, how do we sensitively address the issue um, in a way that holds to the truth of what the Scripture teaches, but not in a way that's going to push people away, I guess. Um, because um, I've had a lot of people over the years, especially in Emmanuel, will come into my office, and this is what, I mean, it's, been, it's repeated probably five, at least I can repeat it on, a hand, on one hand, maybe two. Pastor Sean, I was born and raised a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. My whole family's Catholic. But I believe in Jesus, and I love this church, and I love your preaching, but I will never be a member of this church, and I will never get baptized. And the reasons why is because it would devastate my family, and it would devastate my parents who have died. I would be disrespecting them. And so I'm going to stay a Catholic, but I'm going to actively be involved in your church. How do you, as a pastor, how do you deal with that? That's hard. And these people are still coming. I mean, they're still here. They're not, they don't go to the Catholic church anymore. But they will be a, probably a Catholic until the day they die because it's so entrenched in their family. And to take that step to be baptized is, is in their mind is to turn their back on their culture, on their roots, especially with the farming community out here. We grew up on the farm. We're all Catholics. And for me to do that, it's a big deal to disrespect my family. So I won't get baptized by immersion. I won't join your church, but I will come. And I believe in Jesus. I believe everything you're saying. I'm just not going to do it. There's a lot of people like that. What do you say as pastor? I mean, I tell them, you know, it's your, it's your job. I mean, you keep coming back, but I'm saying, you know, really, here's what the Scripture says. And at some point, you're gonna, are you going to obey the Scripture, or are you going to let family background determine what you do as truth? And kind of leave the ball in their court, because I don't want to say, you know, abandon your family. It's all... Any other questions on Roman Catholicism? All right, let's talk about theories of the atonement because I argued from the very beginning it's a penal substitutionary atonement. We are in the minority of those in even the evangelical world that believe it's a penal substitutionary atonement. So let me give you some theories, and here's one that's kind of a weird one. The first theory, and guys, I'm using the word theory because I don't believe these are accurate, the ransom paid to Satan. Here's the view. This was kind of this was a um, early church origin. His name was Origin. He was kind of a weird guy. Here's the here's the thing. God, God's the owner of the earth, but when Adam and Eve sinned, God lost control of the earth, and now Satan has the keys to the earth. And so when Jesus died. God had to pay Satan through Jesus' death to get the keys back so that God could be in control again. And how Jesus did that was he went down to hell and became the nature of Satan and was died for our sins on the cross but died for our sins in hell. And then when he died in hell, he became reborn, and he's the first reborn man. Now, you like, who believes that? Well... You ever heard of Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer? Modern-day adherents. 
This view nullifies the sovereignty of God and shows that Satan has the keys of justice. The word faith movement today believes this. Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, um, who else is on there? Paula White. I'm trying to think of all the big name people that are out there. Jesse Duplantis. They all believe this. Here's what they believe. They believe that on the cross, Jesus took on the very nature of Satan and then descended to hell and was tortured by demons as the ransom price paid to Satan so that he could get the keys back to the world of which he had been banished by God. In hell, Jesus was reborn as the first born again man and was thus reincarnated there and rose again. Anybody see any biblical evidence for that whatsoever? Did Jesus suffer in hell or did he suffer on the cross? Do we have any scriptures that say Jesus went to hell? It's in the Apostles' Creed, but there's, not, there's two passages of scriptures that may allude to that, but there's not an explicit teaching that says anywhere that Jesus went to hell. But they believe he went there. Not only did he go there, but what did he do? He took on the nature of... Does it ever say Jesus took on the nature of Satan? Did it ever say he was tortured by demons? Did it ever say that he died spiritually? that he was reborn in hell as a born-again man. Listen to what Kenneth Copeland says. And I'll do my best Kenneth Copeland accent. <laughs> you got to get all fiery. How did Jesus die on that cross? <laughs> because God was not his father anymore. He took upon himself the very nature of Satan. That's how he talked. And I'm telling you, Jesus is in the middle of that pit He's suffering all that there to suffer. There's no suffering led apart from him. His emaciated little wormy spirit is down the bottom of that thing and the devil thinks he's got him destroyed, but all of a sudden God started talking. So Jesus' little wormy spirit's emaciated down the bottom of hell. Poor Jesus, he's down there suffering. Nowhere does it ever say Jesus suffered in hell. Where did Jesus die for our sins? On the cross, okay? And what did he say when Right before he died? It is. If it was not finished, then why did he have to go down to hell to finish more? It is finished, but wait a minute, hold that thought. Not quite yet. I gotta go down to hell and I gotta get, you know. I mean, just think about it. There's no does anywhere in the Bible say that Satan has the keys to the world and God and he had to pay, you know, Jesus had to pay God back to get the key. Any of this stuff in the Bible. No. Okay, listen to what Benny Hinn says. He agrees with Kenneth Copeland. I won't do Benny Hinn accent. Ladies and gentlemen, the serpent is a symbol of Satan. Jesus Christ knew the only way he would stop Satan is by becoming one in nature with him. You say, what did you say? What blasphemy is this? No, you hear this. He did not take my sin. He became my sin. Now, here's the thing that you got to watch with those word faith people. They will say this all the time. They'll make a statement. And they say, are you, are you, now, wait a minute. You're probably accusing me of blasphemy. You're accusing me of heresy. But I'm going to say it anyway. Newsflash. If a teacher has to stop in the middle of saying, they said, I may be saying something heresy, blasphemy. Usually it is, okay? And they say it all the time. So Jesus became one in nature with Satan. This is what also what Benny Hinn says. Don't let anyone deceive you. Jesus was reborn. You say, what are you talking about? He was reborn. He had to be reborn. Jan Crouch, purple-haired lady that looked like she got in a fight with a paintball, a real bad paintball. I mean, she's got the big, you have seen, have you seen Jan Crouch? I wish I could, 
I wish I had. You guys you know who Jan Crouch is? She's TBN. Her husband, Paul, who's since died, is the one that founded TBN. And she's got the big purpley, pinkish bouffant. And she's got the huge, big mascara and, like, the big lips. And she's all, you've never seen, you guys, look, Google. Let's, let's, all right. We're going to Google. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of here. I should have put pictures up here. Um, oh, Turner Trinity Broadcasting Network. It's the it's the heretical Channel Three something um, on um, Direct TV. Oh, there she is. There she is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean she's and she's on all the time. She's the ho- I mean she's the grandmother of this whole. You know, she's Jan Crouch. So, um, yeah. So here's what she said. Here's what she said. Um, she said, let's make sure it gets back up on the screen there. What did Jan Crouch say? Because he was made sin, impregnated with sin, and became the very essence of sin on the cross, he was banished from God's presence as a loathsome thing. He and sin were made synonymous. Now, at first, it sounds okay, but let me, I didn't put the rest of this. I probably should have. Here, here's what else she said. His pure human spirit had to descend to hell. As long as Christ was the essence of sin, he was at Satan's mercy in that place of torment. Did Jesus become a sin offering? Yes. Was our sin credited to him? Did he bear it in his body? But did he ever take on the nature of Satan? Did he ever die spiritually? No. Was he ever in hell, tortured, and had to be reborn? No. Okay, that's all. There's a, there's a huge, real big Greek word for that. You know what it's called? Baloney. <laughs> you can quote me on that one. It's in all the lexicons. Look it up. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's the ransom paid to Satan theory that's out there that different people believe. Another theory... Is called the moral influence theory. Uh, Peter Abelard was a scholar in the 1100s, and he argued this was the, he was the first to come on and say there is no penal substitution or wrath to be appeased. God God is not a god of justice. God is not a god that has to punish, and so the cross is not anything related to God punishing sin because God would never punish sin. Instead, Christ's death was show. It was God's way of showing humanity how much He loved us that Jesus was willing to suffer for us. Yes, He suffered on the cross, but it was mainly physical suffering. The cross is a big example of love and sacrifice and is supposed to endear us to a loving God. In other words, it's like this. Here's the the moral influence. Jesus suffered on the cross. I mean, He suffered. He suffered the nails. And we're supposed to look at Jesus and say, wow, that is an amazing display of love. Let me love God because of what I see there. But it would never say, Jesus specifically died in my place, taking my sin and bearing God's wrath or having anything to do with punishment because that's just not what God does. God does not punish sin on the cross. Jesus suffered, but God would never punish our sin in Jesus. That's what the moral influence theory is. And that came about in the 1100s. Today's adherence to that are the liberal scholars, like liberalism. Dare I say there's probably a church in town, right downtown, that believes this. 
the emergent church movement. There's a new guy on the scene. His name's Brian Zond. He's only been around about, I mean, he's been around a while, but he's kind of making waves the past six months. Um, he's a pastor in St. Joseph's, Missouri. He's becoming kind of very popular. And he's, he's writing blogs, and he's going on um, radio programs, and he's going on debates, and he's arguing against penal substitutionary atonement. And he's at a non-denominational, quote-unquote, evangelical church. And he's arguing that the Bible does not teach penal substitutionary atonement. Let me give you an excerpt from his blog. Because he's got a whole blog post saying why the penal substitutionary atonement is not biblical. These are his words. When we confess with Paul that Christ, quote, died for our sins, we don't mean that God required the vicious murder of his son in order to forgive. I'm going to read the rest of it here because it's too big to be on a screen. How would that work anyway? Did God have some scale of torture that once met would satisfy his wrath? Think it through and you'll see the problem. Was death not enough to satisfy this, quote, unquote, God? Did it have to be death by crucifixion? Did torture have to be part of the equation? And how does that work? Was there a minimum number of lashes required in the scourging? Did the thorny crowns have to have a certain number of thorns in order for this God to call the scales balanced? That's what he's saying. Here's what he also says. This is a quote from his website. The Bible is clear. Okay, just let you know. The Bible is clear. This is what he says. God did not kill Jesus. Jesus was offered as a sacrifice in that the Father was willing to send his Son into our sinful system whatever that means, in order to expose it as utterly sinful and provide us with another way. The death of Jesus was a sacrifice in that sense, but it was not a sacrifice to appease a wrathful deity or to provide payment for a penultimate God subordinate to justice. So what's he saying there? God did not punish our sin in Jesus. Okay, then what's the question you should ask then? then how was our sin punished? Because if it's not punished, somebody's going to have to bear it. And who's going to have to bear it? We are. And how are we going to have to bear it? In hell. And so if our sin was not punished in Jesus, then where is our sin? Either we have to bear it or somebody else has to bear it. But this denies that God would even punish sin. It It almost seems like it could lead to universalism to where if you're just sincere in what you believe, everybody's going to heaven because really God's a good God. He loves everybody. He would never even punish sin. Then you ask, well, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross anyway? So it's a very slippery slope where these guys are going. One of the big things that they also talk about here, Steve Chalk, he's more popular in Britain. Um, he calls it cosmic child abuse. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. In his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, he basically says that it, if you believe in the substitutionary atonement, it's cosmic child abuse. It's God taking his son out to the woodshed and whipping him and committing child abuse against Jesus. Now, number one, let me just say this again. Was Jesus ever a victim? Let's go to John 10 for just a moment. And I want Jesus to tell you. I don't want you to take my word for it. Listen to Jesus' own words. Go to John 10. And I will submit to you, Jesus was never a victim. Jesus was never cosmically child abused by his father. The father did it out of his justice. Jesus did it out of his power. There was no division in the Trinity. 
It wasn't that Jesus went unwillingly and somehow he didn't want to go. It wasn't as if God got his, you know, God's the sadistic father up there just punishing Jesus because he wants to or that he gets his jollies off of it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Go to John 10 and go to, um, let's start in verse 14, John 10, 14. These, this is the words of Jesus and listen to what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know them, the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Does that sound like Jesus is a victim? What's he saying? I've got the authority. I'm doing this willingly. I've got this charge from my father. It's not cosmic child abuse. I'm doing it because this is the agreement the father and I had before time started, but this is the way it was going to happen. The father sent me out of his love. I willingly came. And yes, it was painful. And yes, I bore his wrath, but I took it willingly because that was the only way that, that, that justice could be satisfied. Okay? So you've got the ransom paid to Satan, the moral influence, and then you've got what's called the example theory. In the late 1500s, you had a group called the Socinians, and they also denied that God's justice needed to be satisfied by substitutionary atonement. Basically, what they say is that Christ's death simply provides us with an example of how we should trust and obey God like Jesus did, even if it means that we die. The moral influence view was to lead us to truly appreciate God's love, but this view is actually, is, but his view is to actually lead us to ethical living. And this may, let me explain this. Jesus did not die in our place. God did not punish Jesus. The example theory is we look at how Jesus suffered and obeyed his father on the cross. We look at that and say, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. Be like looking at the movie Braveheart. You guys all seen Braveheart? You look at William Wallace and say, okay, there's a heroic man that was willing to die for his country. That's admirable. That's heroic. That inspires me to go be patriotic, okay? It's almost like that. Jesus' death on the cross inspires me to go live a life that pleases God and being obedient to God. But it has nothing to do with Jesus dying in my place. It's more of an example to me to look at and say, wow, Jesus really did submit to the Father. I can go do that. So it's really salvation by works and looking at the cross is more an example. Now, who are the modern-day examples of this? Mormons. The LDS Church, the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. Basically, what they believe is that Jesus is, and they'll use the word atonement. Be careful. The Mormons use the word atonement, but they don't mean the same thing. It provides immortality for all people regardless of their faith. Now, we'll talk a little bit about this later, but let me just, in a nutshell, because I don't want to confuse you. Here's the Mormon view. There was a God over this planet, and he learned how to exalt to Godhood, and then he got another planet. And out on all these planets, there are spirit children in embryo. So all of us are spirit children in embryo. At one point in time, we came into being when our mother and father begat us so now we're living in mortal probation on earth and the only way to get back to being a spirit 
person in our own planet is to follow these steps of Mormonism. And that includes tithing, that includes being baptized for the dead, that includes temple marriage, that includes celestial underwear, all this weird stuff. And then you have to um, believe that Joseph Smith's a prophet. You've got to do all these things. And once you do those, only men... Wives, you come in on the coattails of your man. Then you die. And then if you're, if you're a good Mormon, you get the highest level of heaven. If you're like us that aren't Mormons but we're kind of good, you get the second level of heaven. If you are um, like a really bad person, you get the third level of heaven. If you're an apostate Mormon, you get hell where the devil is. Okay, And so when Jesus died on the cross, he made, he made those levels of heaven available for everybody. So the ultimate goal is for you to realize your immortality and to go back to have your own planet so you can start this all over again on another planet. That's Mormonism. Also, listen to what Joseph Fielding Smith, a former prophet, said. This is scary. In 1970 72, he was a prophet of the, of the Latter day Saint Church. Man may commit certain grievous sins that place him beyond the reach of the atoning blood of Christ. If then he would be saved, he must make sacrifice of his own life to atone. So far as his power lies, for that sin, for the, blood, for the blood of Christ alone under certain circumstances, will not avail. That's the word, will not avail. So basically, I don't know what those sins are that put you out of reach of Jesus, but if, if, if you're out of the reach, you need to go die for yourself. It can't happen today because of legalities. But during the days of Brigham Young in Utah, it did happen. Human sacrifices. Two things to, 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 two things to observe about Mormonism, really. In Mormonism, no, nobody really goes to hell. The devil goes to hell, demons go to hell, and apostate Mormons go to hell. Which, that's to make you not ever leave the Mormon church, because it's really bad. If you're just a pagan person out there, and you die, you're not going to hell. But if you're a Mormon and you defect from Mormonism and join another group, you go to hell. But they believe in a universal salvation for all people. And they believe the atonement is not fully sufficient to cover all sins. Now let's talk about the one that's probably the, the most closest to us, but still not quite there. And there are churches, very fine churches in Sterling that believe this. So what I'm about to tell you is not a heresy. It's, I think it's a deficiency, but it's not a heresy. You know the difference there? I don't think it's quite what the Bible teaches, but I wouldn't say if you believe it, you're heretical. I would say that you just don't have a full understanding of what the Bible teaches. And this is called the governmental view. Here's the governmental view. The purpose of the atonement is not an actual payment for sin, but a way to show sinners that God's laws are to be obeyed and when they are broken, there must be a penalty. Christ suffered to show us how much God means about His holiness and His law, but it still isn't a penal substitution in the place of sinners. God had to punish sin, so He punished sin in Jesus. So there's penal atonement. So God's punishing Jesus, but it's not a penal substitutionary atonement, meaning what? Jesus did not really die in anybody's place. In other words, he died to make salvation possible, but did not actually die for anybody in particular. This has been the traditional view of classic Arminianism. So if you go to the Nazarene Church, or the Wesleyan Church, or the Assembly of God Church, 
or any church that's more Arminian in their leanings, this is their view of the atonement. And J. Kenneth Greider, he's a leading Nazarene Arminian scholar, has said this. He said, a spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades. Thus, many Arminians whose theology is not very precise say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism, which teaches instead that Christ suffered for us. Arminianism teaches that Christ suffered for everyone so that the Father could forgive the ones who repent and believe. So, in other words, the Arminian view would say, Jesus did not die in the place of anybody in particular, but died in order to make salvation possible. So they would not say Jesus... like. Maybe an Armenian says it, but it would be foreign to their vocabulary to say, Jesus died in my place, or Jesus died in the place of sinners. They would say, Jesus died on the cross so that God could forgive you if you meet the conditions of repenting and believing. But on the cross, Jesus... So here's the, here's the reality of the governmental view. Think about it logically. Could Jesus have died on the cross and nobody ever be saved? Because if he did not die for anybody in particular and only died to make it theoretical... Could there be a theoretical possibility that Jesus died and nobody would ever believe in him? Okay? There's a theoretical possibility. So what they're saying is that Jesus did not die in the place of anybody. He only died to make it possible. Okay? Now, let's talk about the Jehovah's Witness view of the cross because it's way... (laughs) It's not that... Their view of the cross is not that weird. It's just their view of who Jesus is. Um, so there's two heresies that the, well, three heresies that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. What's the, the first heresy we looked at last week, they believe in what would be called, what was the, what was the heresy we looked at last week? You guys remember Arianism? I don't expect you to remember, but Arianism is the heresy that Jesus was created. Okay. So Jesus is created. That's the heresy. And they also believe that Jesus received his Messiahship at age 30 on the day of his baptism. So Jesus was not really fully divine until he was baptized. So he wasn't, that's a heresy too, because the Bible teaches that he's the Messiah when he's born. His name will be Emmanuel. I mean, Jesus doesn't get his divinity when he gets baptized. He's born divine. Okay? So they have a false view of who Jesus is. So if you have a false view of who Jesus is, how do you view the cross? Is it the real Jesus dying for you? No, it's not the real Jesus dying for you. So here's what they say. They do believe it's sin and that Adam is sin and there has to be a punishment for sin and there has to be a ransom. So they use all that terminology. The Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus' ransom death, that's the word they use, ransom death, his ransom death. Now, we wouldn't have any problem with that language, would we? His ransom death. I mean, the word ransom's in the Bible, but they use the word ransom death. His ransom death at age 33 balanced the scales of justice between Adam's sins and God's perfect requirements. We probably wouldn't say it like that, but at least they acknowledge sin. But here's what's really weird about them. They don't believe he died on a cross. They will not call it a cross. They call it a torture stake. They do not believe literally historically that it was an actual Roman cross. It was a torture stake. So not only do they call the Trinity a three-headed monster, but they also don't like the term cross. They call it a torture stake. So, biblically, 
the notion that Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism runs counter to biblical teaching. Jesus was hailed at the Messiah at his birth and even before. And also the fact that um, history shows that Jesus actually died um, on the cross, not a torture stake. So they deny the deity of Christ and only claim that he became the Messiah at his baptism. So their view of Jesus is not Trinitarian and it's heretical. But also they use the same vocabulary we use, such as ransom and faith and forgiveness, but have totally different meanings from what the Bible actually teaches. And we talked about this last week, that we've got to be very careful when we talk with other cults because they'll use the same language. Mormons love the term atonement. They use the word atonement. They will use the word repent. They use the word cross. Jehovah's Witnesses will use the word um, ransom. They won't call it a cross, but a torture stake. So these cults will have the same vocabulary, but they have different meanings. Okay? Let's, um, for the sake of time here, let's go to, we'll, read, we'll go to, um, you can read Isaiah 53 later. I think everybody's familiar with that. But I just want to show you one passage of Scripture here. Um, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, what does it say? bore our sins where in his body on the tree on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed does this say anything about him bearing our sins in the, in the in hell he bore does it say he himself bore our sins so i'm going to give you guys a little greek lesson the greek word huper that's how you pronounce it huper it's pronounced huper it's a very important little preposition that packs a punch. You will probably see it in your translations as the word for. But our English language is not that precise. Let me just say it this way. I went to the store for... Three hours. Does that say anything about, what, is, what does it tell, what, what's the four there telling me? The duration of where I was there. So-and-so got hurt in the fourth quarter, so I went in and played for him. That's different, isn't it? What are you doing? You're substituting yourself for that person. So our English word four can mean different things, in the Greek, here's what that word means, huper. If you go to all the lexicons and look at all the contextual things, here's how it's defined. On behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for, in behalf of, in behalf of, for the sake of. The New International Dictionary of the New Testament, theology, basics of biblical Greek grammar, and essentials of New Testament Greek, all three of those define it that way. So you guys tell me, when the word huper shows up, what is it conveying theologically? Substitution. And if you, if you have the word who pair along with the cross or the death, what is it conveying even more specifically? Substitutionary atonement. Okay? So let's find out where the word who pair shows up. We've looked at some of these scriptures already. So we're bringing this full circle to where I started. The Bible teaches substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, which is what? Jesus died literally as a punishment in the place of sinners as a finished work. 
for Second Corinthians, I mean, Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, who pair? He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So who was made sin? Jesus. On behalf of whom? Who pair? So you, how could you also translate that? In our place, as our substitute, he became sin. It just it flows a little bit easier to say, for our sake. But it's the, it's the word who pair. In our place, he became sin for us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what did Jesus do? He gave, what is it? He gave himself. What does that mean? It's the cross. He, he substituted, he gave himself, he died himself for me. Does it just say he died out there hypothetically to make it a possibility? He died specific. What is Paul saying? When Jesus died on that cross, he was actually dying for me. Okay? It was a done deal. Galatians 3.13, we've already looked at this, but Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us who pair. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for... Who did he become a curse for? Who pair. Us, in the place of, in the stead of us. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself huper, up for her. What did Jesus give himself for? On behalf of the church. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5.9-10 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, huper so that whether awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And then 1 Timothy 2.14, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, who pair to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good work. So here's the bottom line. Was His work on the cross to make actual penal substitution to bear God's wrath, to reconcile sinners to God, and to redeem them from the curse of law and sin? Or, option number two, was his work on the cross hypothetical in that he did not redeem or propitiate or sacrifice himself for anyone in particular, but made all people savable, redeemable, and forgivable? Which one is it? Good, you guys are now all happy Calvinists. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) No, I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to leave that hanging out there. Because if Jesus made people savable, who's in the driver's seat? If Jesus died in the place of no one in particular, and yet people get saved, okay. So, and I'm not trying to make you Calvinist or Arminian. I'm not just <laughs> saying that you, you can believe what you you can believe. However, it comes down. But let me just say this. Let me ask you, there's three options. Let me ask you a question here. Did Jesus die for some sins? Okay. Did Jesus die for all sins? Okay. So let me ask you a question. Is there a sin that somebody commits that makes them not a Christian? 
Exactly. And what would we call that? Unbelief. Yeah. Is unbelief a sin? Yes. Okay. So if Jesus died for all sins, and yet somebody doesn't believe, then there's one sin out there for which Jesus didn't die for, and that's the sin of unbelief. So either Jesus died for all the sins of all people, or he died for some of the sins of all people, or he died for all the sins of some people. (laughs) Or you can just scrap all that and say, what in the world is he talking about? What I want you to understand, and and again, you have to come to your own conclusions upon this, is that there are many in our day who present Jesus as a Savior who is waiting upon people to open the door of their heart and let Jesus in so that he can save them. And really, people are only savable in the sense that Jesus didn't really do anything on the cross for them. He just made salvation possible. And so God has cast one vote. The devil's cast a vote against you. You're the one that makes the deciding vote. It's up to you whether you're going to trust Jesus. And so on the cross, there was really nothing accomplished. It only becomes activated when you repent and believe. Does that make sense? Some of you are scratching your heads. (laughs) I'm just throwing that out there just to have fun with you um, in the last 10 minutes. So are there any questions or confusions? Yes, Risa. (laughs) Mm-hmm. what they believe to whoever. What about, because um, I was watching the show, what about Amish? You know... I mean, they believe that, like, they're the... Yeah, the, I don't know what their actual theological beliefs. They're more of a sociological cult in the sense that they've, they've withdrawn themselves from society and live under um, their own rules. But they're, they're pacifists, and they don't believe in being involved in, in war. But I don't know what their actual theological beliefs are. Oh. So... I just know there's a lot of books by what's her name Beverly Lewis that writes about Amish ones. So I don't go ask her read 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 a, read a Beverly Lewis book. Kind of you know, I've never read one of those. What about the Berean Church? Yeah, they're pretty close to us. Are they? The Berean, yeah, yeah. I'm good friends with Pastor Dan, and um, yeah, the Berean Church and our church. Like I would say, in this town, the churches that have probably the similar doctrine um, would be the Berean Church, our church, First Baptist, Foursquare would probably be close in very key essentials but they tend to be a little bit more charismatic in the sense that they believe in you know tongues and, and a little bit more charismatic um, the nazarene church would be a little bit different than us because they believe you can lose your salvation mm-hmm. and they're a little bit more um i don't want to say workspace but there tends to be a little bit more of a, a legalistic spirit of trying to compare yourself to other people on how you behave um, and so there would be probably a pretty significant difference between us and them. There's a huge difference between us and the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Any other questions? I didn't mean to like confuse you guys on the, on the tome. I just want you to think about, I want you to ponder and ask these questions. And it's, a, it's a deep, deep thinking, but it's good. Did Jesus actually, on the cross, propitiate God's wrath reconcile a people, die in the place of people, literally, physically, 2,000 years ago. Did he do that, or did he just do that to make it possible? 
Because either he did it or he made it possible. And if he made it possible, then it becomes actual when you repent and believe. So really, it didn't happen at the cross. It happens when you trust him. Now, some people argue it this way. It's like this. I may buy you a gift. And um, I bought you a gift. I paid for it. I've done everything for it. But you still have to come and receive it. And it's not yours until you receive it. That's the argument they would make. That Jesus did everything necessary on the cross, but it's still up to you to come and receive it. But even then, it still makes it contingent. What happens if you never come and receive it? Yeah, if you never come and receive it. So what I would say is that even the faith that you have to believe in Jesus was bought on the cross. So he ensured that even the faith that you would have to believe in him, he paid for that on the cross, and he gave that to you as a gift. So here's, here's the deal, guys. On the cross, we call it a redemption accomplished and applied. Was our, was our redemption accomplished on the cross? Was it accomplished? Yes. But did, did it automatically come to you? The benefits of it. There had to be a point in time when it was applied to you. How was it applied to you? It was applied to you when the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of your heart, showed you your need for Christ. He came and caused you to be born again, gave you the gifts of faith and repentance. And then when you repented and believed, what Christ had accomplished then became applied to you. But that's, that's a Trinitarian working because who's doing it? Jesus accomplished it. The Holy Spirit's applying it to you. And the Father in eternity past past planned it for you. And so it's a little bit more consistent to say that it was accomplished. And yes, it still needs to be applied. But Jesus is going to make sure it's applied through the power of the Holy Spirit working in those whom the Father has, has worked it out before eternity to get it. Does that make sense? You may not agree with it, but I mean, I'm just, <laughs> does it make sense? I'm not sure exactly where I read it, but uh, it comes to my mind that by grace that we are saved through faith, mm-hmm. that it's not of ourselves, mm-hmm. it's a gift. Yeah, God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Okay. Yeah. And the question is, what's the gift of God? Eternal life. In that, yeah, in that, in that text it says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what's the gift of God? Is it grace? Is it faith? Or is it salvation? And my answer is yes. Yeah. But some people would say, no, it's salvation because they would say faith is not a gift. Faith is something you produce. And if you produce the faith, then you are born again. Whereas others would say, no, God gives it to you all. And the faith that you even have to believe in Jesus was a gift that God gave you. And that gift of faith was purchased by Jesus on the cross and it was applied to you when the Holy Spirit did that. So there's, there's different views out there. Well, we need to make sure that we understand what faith is. Faith is not just faith. There's always an object of faith. And in Christianity, who's the object of our faith? Jesus. Because everybody has faith in something. The only type of saving faith is faith in Christ, the faith in Jesus. Um, so, Yes, Dorothea. We're learning about the 
<laughs> you know, that's a great question, Dorothea. I don't know if they do it as systematically as we do, but I bet you like for Mormon missionaries that have to go door to door and enter, you know, go up to a door, they probably train them in some key ways to answer the questions we're going to have. And when they train the Jehovah's Witnesses to go door to door, I'm sure they train them with some canned things of, of how we're going to answer. So I'm sure they learn what we believe in the sense of how to answer. But I've found that most people in those cults have never actually sat down and been taught to read the Bible for themselves systematically. You know, they pick and choose what their teaching wants to get them. So I think... I don't know if they would have a class like this on, you know, what are Baptists and Presbyterians and what are those other weird churches in Sterling believe? But I think when they get ready to go out door to door, I'm sure they equip them with the objections they're going to get from Bible believing people like us. So if you come across a Protestant Baptist or Presbyterian or Bible or Berean or whatever, here's what they're probably going to say to you. They're probably going to use words like Trinity or they're going to, you know, they're going to use the same words we are, but just keep staring them back to, you know, the, the script, you know, don't get them off the script. And then they come to my house and I get them off the script because that's what happened. <laughs> and Jehovah's Witnesses come and they, they, didn't, they weren't too happy. So, um, yeah, the one lady, she's like, she's like, we're going to, she's got, she's like, I was getting into it, not getting into it. I was having a good dialogue with the younger woman. And finally, the older lady says, you know, we're not here to get into a debate. We were just coming here to give literature. It's time for us to go now. <laughs> and so I'm sure they left on her clipboard, do not return to that house. <laughs> so... But, but you guys can do the same thing. It doesn't just have to be a pastor. You guys, you guys have enough armed ammunition. From, you guys know more than you think you know. Believe that. You guys know more than you think you know. You may not think you know a lot, but I guarantee you, if you go out and somebody asks you, you may, you may fumble and have to think, but the Holy Spirit will give you help in that time, and I guarantee you know more than you think you know. You really do. Especially, yes. What would you say? Okay, Lutherans. Yes, okay. Because I, I went to the catechism class and stuff like that because I was mm-hmm. baptized as a Lutheran. What's there's different degrees of there's different. Was it Missouri Synod or was it Evangelical Lutheran Church of America? Because there's a huge difference. One's very very liberal and one's very very conservative, in the sense that like Trinity Lutheran here, mm-hmm. their Missouri Synod, which is the most conservative of the Lutheran denominations. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. so like on dogmas, they would probably believe a lot of what we would believe. They wouldn't believe in baptism by immersion. They may be a little bit more ritualistic in their worship, um, and they may not be as evangelistically minded, but on the basic beliefs, the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church is probably not that far off on the dogmas, the basic beliefs. Now, when it comes to doctrines like baptism, like like their view of doing evangelism, like they would, they probably wouldn't be as heavy on it, like us going out and sharing the gospel and doing missions and seeing and sharing our faith. It would be more of a, you know, they wouldn't be that strong in that. But they would believe you have to be saved by Jesus. They would just be as, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so some people say Lutheran's Catholic light because it kind of came. Technically, not, maybe, but... The Missouri Synod Lutheran Church is actually fairly solid in their basic beliefs. So, all right, we probably better shut this po- lollipop stand down. We've got um, um, we've got one minute left for questions, unless we need to close down the popsicle stand. Um, so they don't believe in the Eucharist. 
they have a modified view called consubstantiation, which is not, it's like a halfway view between the memorial view that we have and the Catholic view of the full. Um, it, it's not, I don't know, I'm trying to remember how they word it. It's like, I think they use the words like, it's, it's un, in and under. I'd have to go back, isn't it like, in and around and in and around and through. Whereas like when we take the Lord's Supper, you guys know it's a wafer. We have gluten-free wafers. You know, unless you're a Catholic, Jesus is a gluten-free Jesus. Or I mean, okay, so we have wafers and it's, it's well, it's just grape juice. Okay, so when you, take, when you take the Lord's Supper, when it's passed around, none of you are thinking, I'm literally eating Jesus' body. Okay, but is there something sacred and special about what we're doing? Are we remembering the Lord's death? Are we worshiping? Are we, in a sense, why is the Lord's Supper sensory? What are we, we don't just look at it. What do we do? We take it in. We, we taste it. And, and so it's a metaphor for, I am the bread of life. Feast on me. Taste of me. Taste and see that I'm good. Ingest me. So there's something sensory about the Lord's Supper in that we're taking it into our bodies. And there's something spiritual about it in the sense that it's an act of worship but we don't believe that if you take that, you get saved. And we don't believe that you're literally taking in Jesus' body and blood. It's a memorial. We're memorializing what Jesus did. But there's still a special sacredness about it. Um, first, yeah, salvation comes first. Salva- just like in baptism, the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper are to be celebrated after a person makes that conscious choice to trust Christ for salvation. Baptism is just the introductory in like your first step is baptism is not repeated. You're baptized once. Lord's Supper is often as you do this. It's an ongoing celebration. So.